Our reading is the first chapter of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel chapter 1. In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the visions were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead, they did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side each had the face of a lion, and on the left the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side, and two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead, Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel, intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved, and when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creature moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse sparkling like ice and awesome. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out one towards the other, and each had two wings covering its body. 
When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. I'm grateful to Sally for reading that uh, reading for us from Ezekiel. There was a child who drew a picture and uh, proudly told her Sunday school teacher that it was a picture of God. The Sunday school teacher said, but no one has ever seen God. The little girl replied, well, you have now. (laughs) You know, it's difficult for us to picture God. Whatever image we try and generate, it will always fall short of the reality and it will always remain deficient. Of course, we can attempt to understand various aspects of God's holy nature and God's heavenly nature to learn something of his character. Uh, you know, I could pick up a flower and I could uh, use it as a, as a wonderful visual aid to explain something of the creativeness of God. Um, as we seek to provide for our families and friends, we can grasp something of the idea of God's wonderful providence Those of us who have experience of parenthood um, can thereby have some understanding of God as our Heavenly Father and God as the righteous judge could be related perhaps to our own experience of the process of law. The love that we show each other gives us an insight into the love of God. Even so, frequently our love is impure. Our love can be self-centered. Our love can be inconsistent, whereas God's love, of course, is perfect. So let's ponder a little bit upon this problem, because the key problem that I want to think about this morning is what do we do when it comes to God's holiness? I think here we have a real problem because it's hard to relate our human experience with that of the holiness of God. And yet, God's holiness is his most fundamental and important attribute. If there was one word that we could use or should use to describe God, uh, I suspect many of us would be tempted to think of the word love And of course, it's very popular and modern to say, well, all you need is love. Um, God is love and it covers all things. 
And yet, wonderful though God's love is, even more wonderful and even more fundamental is God's holiness. Indeed, the, uh, the, the, the Puritan Thomas Watson wrote this. He said, holiness is the most sparkling jewel of his crown. It is the name by which God is known. And uh, this, of course, is backed by Scripture. Uh, Psalm 111, we read that he provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Um, There's that famous uh, vision in Isaiah chapter 6. And uh, we read the words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And uh, in Exodus, we read, Who amongst the God is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? And you see, the truth is that all of God's other attributes are fundamentally underpinned by his holiness. God's love is holy. God's providence is holy. God's mercy is holy. God's judgment is holy. And so it goes on. So how then can you and I, as imperfect human beings, begin to grasp this holiness, this glory, this perfection of God? Well, sometimes we have to rely simply on thinking about our experiences of its absence. We're more familiar with our own imperfections, perhaps, than God's perfection. And we can say, well, God has no sin. God is never unfaithful. God is never untrue. But when we run out of those negatives in order to describe the positives of God, then we must begin to try and understand the very symbols of God's perfection and holiness. We might begin to think of things like light and brightness and fire. But to know and to understand God's holiness in any reasonable measure seems perhaps like an impossible task. But it is for that very reason that we as his people should strive to gain a deeper understanding of God's holy perfection. For our understanding of God himself will govern our understanding of the gospel, our understanding of worship, our understanding of prayer, our understanding of living holy lives ourselves as God's people. But graciously, God has revealed himself through his word... And we find recorded within scripture those wondrous occasions when God particularly shows himself for who he is and usually perhaps to a patriarch or or to a prophet or in the New Testament particularly he showed himself to the apostle John. So what I'd like us to do now is to consider this wonderful vision of God's holiness and glory as we see it in Ezekiel chapter 1. It's one of those chapters that often as preachers we try and avoid because it's hard, and yet the benefits are 
supreme. Here we have a truly awesome vision of God's holiness and God's glory. And such a revelation of God uh, to his people is termed a theophany. There's a, there's a word for us, it's a theophany. And uh, the other theophanies that spring to mind was the uh, commissioning of Isaiah in chapter 6, uh, but also we think of uh, that wonderful vision given to John in Revelation. That's also a theophany. And here we have Ezekiel chapter 1. And as we examine this vision that was given to Ezekiel, it's important to understand also its setting and its context. And we see there right at uh, verse 1 that it tells us about Ezekiel's age. He's now 30 years old, and that's a significant age because that is the age at which a priest is commissioned. So this vision occurred right at the very beginning of Ezekiel's ministry. Um, It's also in the period of the exile, And uh, so it's important to understand that, that this was a desperate time for God's people. And this vision was of such importance for Ezekiel to, to grasp the holy nature and the glory of God, because he would then lead his people um, in the path of righteousness. The vision itself begins in verse 4, and it's a vision with abundant imagery. And why? Well, it's simply impossible to describe adequately the unfathomable God in mere human terms. And that's why as we read this chapter, we see very frequently uh, those phrases that imply a likeness. There's words like as, resembling, looking like, like, and the appearance of. And therefore, I would say straight at the onset, we must view this chapter as being symbolic rather than literal. These images are all used in their richness, and they're simply there for the purpose of trying to describe God's infinite and majestic holiness in terms that may actually be understood to some extent by finite, imperfect, sinful human beings, of which I am one. But it starts there with a typical formula, verse 4, I looked and I saw, and what is it that Ezekiel saw? I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The centre of the fire looked like glowing metal. This is the first part of the vision. There's this storm, this great thunderstorm coming from the north. And it's an awesome thunderstorm with brilliant flashes of lightning. And within it, there is a center of fire that we're told looked like glowing metal. Now, it's not actually glowing metal. It's just that so brilliant was the flash that it looked like glowing metal. And glowing metal would be an awesome thing. Uh, even today, if you ever go to a um, a blast furnace and, and see the molten metal coming out, it's, it's an awesome sight. Uh, and it must have been so for people of that time in history. If they ever saw molten metal, it, it would be an amazing thing. So 
to see what looked like glowing metal in this thunderstorm would have been an awesome sight. But as we go on, we see other little details coming out, and we, we see described these uh, four living creatures, uh, and they're at the center of the fire. And uh, again, this term of likeness comes in time and time again. And in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight and their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. And uh, verse 10 tells us a little bit more about their heads. And uh, actually they had four faces on them. Um, And their heads were shaped a bit like a cube. And the front was the face of a man. The right was a face of the... Sorry, yeah... Well, you can work it out. The right face was that of a lion, the left face that of an ox, and the back face was that of an eagle. And uh, these are symbolic. Uh, the man at the front represents man's dominion over creation. We can go right back to Genesis when God gave man dominion over the creation that he had created for him. And uh, the lion and the ox represent the kings of both the wild and the domestic beasts. And uh, the eagle is the chief creature of the air. So this covers creation in terms of the animals and uh, the birds. And it gives us a picture of magnificence, of power and dominion. And these creatures had wings that touched each other to form a square. Um, Each creature had a human face looking outwards from the square. And we read in verses 12 to 14 more about the the fiery appearance of these creatures. Uh, They were made in a square formation. Um, And again, we have this image of fire and burning coal. Um, Such things symbolize judgment. And we can compare that with with the similar vision in in Isaiah 6, where again, uh, fire and coal is there to represent God's judgment. And we understand that this square formation of these creatures can move very easily with speed. Um, They can maintain this tight formation. But what we do notice in verse 12 is that the control of those creatures is entirely by God's Spirit. We read, each one went straight ahead. Wherever the Spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. And then it goes on and it describes these wheels, probably quite a strange thing to read in scripture, the the, the description of these large uh, wheels, which are actually two intersecting wheels, so they're sort of at right angles to each other, uh, and they're magnificent wheels with eyes in them, a bit like giant casters. So we've got this square of creatures on these giant casters and they can move in any direction without the wheels having to, to turn. And uh, it must have been an awesome sight that Ezekiel was given. Uh, Whenever the spirit would go, sorry, wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would ride along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. But this is merely the starting point. However awesome the sight of these creatures and the wheels on which they rode uh, is, 
there is something more to come. And above this, we have this amazing platform that we're told looked like sparkling ice. And verse 24 tells us about the structure that moves with a sound like the roaring of rushing water, like the voice of the Almighty and like the tumult of an army. Uh, So there's a terrifying sound added to this awesome vision which simply adds to the climax of what it is that Ezekiel is looking at. But finally then, above this amazing platform is a magnificent throne made of sapphire. And on the throne was the likeness of a man. And uh, verses 27 and 28 tell us more about this. Uh, Ezekiel records, I saw that from what appeared to be like, sorry, what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the cloud on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. And we can read something similar in Isaiah 6 and also in Revelation chapter 4. But what I want to do at this point is, before we go on any further, I really want to dispel any misconception at this point. We've had these strange creatures, these strange wheels, these strange sounds, uh, men that look like metal. Um, This is definitely not close encounters of the third kind. Let's put that to bed straight away. Um, such claims, and I remember reading the books when I was a teenager back in the 1970s, um, such claims are utter nonsense and they must be dismissed. This is nothing to do with uh, science fiction. This is a wonderful vision of the, which tries to represent the holiness and the glory of God. And that's where, really where we, should, we, where we should stay with it. Um, and so... Really, the magnificence of this whole image, this whole vision, points to one thing. And we read about that towards the end in verse 28, where we read this. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. We can't see directly the glory of the Lord And it's not even the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So in its magnificence, it is still claiming to be merely uh, a representation. It's not the actual glory of the Lord, but it is the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And magnificent and awesome though this vision is, it is a mere cameo compared to the reality. It's a bit like looking at a menu rather than tasting the food. It's a bit like those lovely pictures on the chocolate box of the Swiss Alps. It's an image of them, but it's not the Swiss Alps, is it? And so, all human thought can give no more than a dim understanding compared to the actual awesome and majestic holiness of God. And we read there that Ezekiel's response is the same response of any human being. When I saw it, I fell face down. 
And if you recall, um, Isaiah did the same when he had his vision. He said, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And it's interesting to note that uh, the old rabbis insisted that no, uh, no one under the age of 30 should read Ezekiel chapter 1. Um, such was the sense of the awesome and holy nature of God. It was considered too amazing to read until you'd reached a certain age of maturity. So we have this vision of God's holiness. And holiness simply means to be set apart. And we can go elsewhere in scripture to be reminded of God's holiness. There's that uh, wonderful uh, words of Hannah's prayer that we read in 1 Samuel, uh, where we read that there is no one holy like the Lord, there is no one besides you, there is no rock like our God. And uh, Habakkuk writes, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. And uh, Psalm 12 says, the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. So we've merely scratched the surface of this wonderful vision from Ezekiel chapter 1. We've considered the problem of trying to understand God's holiness. And I hope this short glimpse at what is written here first of all for Ezekiel, but then for all of us, will give us that understanding of something to do with God's holiness. And maybe uh, this morning we, we, we have discovered just that little bit more of God's holiness and his glory. And finally, I want us to think then about what our response should be. Because the first thing that I tend to do is when I look at God's holiness, I'm reminded of my own sin much in the same way that uh, Isaiah was. and uh, But of course, as God's people today, we should view the coming of the Lord Jesus against the background of this kind of revelation about the God who sent him. You see, the incarnation is the intervention of the holy God of Israel, the God of all mankind, for the good of all mankind. The coming of Jesus is not only to tell us the good news that God is love, and that is very true and that is very wonderful, but actually the coming of the Lord Jesus is to tell us the better news that a holy and a righteous God is ready in mercy and love and grace to justify the ungodly through the atoning sacrifice of his Son. As we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, we see in him the highest revelation of God's holiness. Jesus indeed in Acts is given the title the Holy and Righteous One. And he reflected in his life the perfect holiness of God. But finally, you know, God's holiness today must be revealed in the church as the body of Christ and it's here that you and I have our greatest challenge I think because how can we hold together 
the magnificence of God's holiness as revealed here in Ezekiel's vision with the reality of who we are in the church. You know, I look at my life, and I'm sure you look at your own lives, and sometimes we ask ourselves, well, what overlap is there between the majestic holiness of God and who we are? And really, at a human level, we have to conclude there isn't any. And yet, the amazing truth for every Christian is this, that in Christ, we share God's holiness. In Christ, we share God's holiness. And when God looks at you and me, who are Christians, he doesn't see our sinful hopelessness. What he sees is the perfection of the holiness of Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. God cannot in any way drop his awesome standards of holiness when he reaches out to us. What he does instead is through Christ, in a miraculous and wonderful and loving way, he lifts us up. And he clothes us with Christ's holiness. Christ works in us. And that makes all the difference. In Hebrews we read that God disciplines us for our good. That we may share in his holiness. And Paul writes this in Ephesians. He said you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. To put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So when God looks at us, he sees a reflection of himself. That glorious vision of Ezekiel is what we display. And it's essential that we dwell frequently on the the majestic holiness of God, for only then will we maintain our understanding of the awfulness of our sin, the need for repentance, and the true glory of the cross. It will also remind us of the true costliness of Christ's atoning sacrifice. But it will also encourage us to dwell upon the magnificence that awaits us in heaven. You see, such understanding of God's holiness will have an impact upon our prayer lives the way we pray, the importance of praying, the need for confession, the need for praise. All these things will be so much clearer to us when we consider whom it is that we address. And such understanding of God's holiness will have an impact upon our service and witness. Because surely only the very best, only our attempt to be perfect is good enough for a perfect God. How can we give second best in our effort, our intellect, our time, and our money and our talents to the magnificent holy God who is our Father in heaven? 
And such understanding of the holiness of God will impact upon our worship and those who lead us in worship. We shall be desired to be brought before God. And surely you and I will yearn for God-centered thoughts and God-centered actions and be even more dissatisfied with all that is man-centered and self-centered. And we will sing, whether with old hymns or new songs, things which will increase our sense of who we are dealing with and much more who it is that is dealing with us. And so such understanding of God's holiness will make us earnest in our preaching, in our teaching, and our presentation of the gospel to those who as yet do not know the Lord. It will shape our emphasis towards the need to get right with the holy God and to persuade others to do the same, that we all might repent and believe and bring others to repentance. And it will prompt us to live lives worthy of our calling, worthy of the title Christian, worthy that we share in our bodies this vision that we read in Ezekiel. Because when God looks upon us, that is what he sees. And uh, as a final thought then, I often like quotes from C.H. Spurgeon, and uh, he said this, he said, In proportion as a church is holy, in that proportion will its testimony for Christ be powerful. So an understanding of God's holiness and where we fit into all of this is so vitally important to the power of our lives, both as individuals and here as a fellowship. And uh, finally then, words from Paul from Ephesians again, where he says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let us therefore, each of us, be encouraged to be imitators of our God, who is majestic in holiness and awesome in glory.